G'day and welcome to a bonus episode of The Movie Passport. This is a follow-up to our discussion on Australian cinema. The audio was taken from a public talk I gave about the history of Victorian films. For those who don't know, Victoria is a state in the southeast of Australia, and its capital city is Melbourne, the second most populous city in the country. If you'd like to watch the film clips that I referenced throughout the talk, links are provided in the episode description. I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon everyone, my name is Duncan. Today I'll be giving you a brief history of filmmaking in Melbourne and Victoria. We'll be starting in the silent era and travelling all the way up to the present day. The main presentation will run for about 45 minutes and there will be a chance for questions and discussion afterwards. I'll be playing clips from a range of different movies throughout the presentation. The reason I wrote this presentation was to highlight our local film industry and the amazing films it has produced. I also wanted to explore the ways in which our society, culture and environment have been depicted on the big screen. Films are the most popular art form in the world and thus serve as an important medium through which to tell personal and local stories, in our own words and our own accents. Films can contribute to a shared identity. However, they can also challenge dominant narratives and force us to reevaluate our perceptions of the world. Victorian cinema is almost as old as cinema itself. In 1895, the film pioneers Auguste and Louis Lumiere screened the first ever motion picture to a small audience in Paris. It was a short film about workers leaving a factory. Less than a year later, the Melbourne Athenaeum Theatre in Collins Street screened the first ever motion picture seen by Australian audiences. Now, I couldn't find the name of the film that was screened, but I do know that in 1897, the Melbourne Opera House screened complete footage of the Melbourne Cup and Caulfield Cup on the same day that the races were run. The 1900s and 1910s were a boom period for Victorian cinema. The Limelight Department, one of the world's first movie studios, was established in Melbourne by the Salvation Army. It produced evangelical films, as well as carrying out private and government contracts. Its most notable production was Soldiers of the Cross, released in 1900, which dramatized episodes from the life of Jesus Christ, as well as stories of early Christian martyrs. Screenings were accompanied by a 20 to 30 piece orchestra and a live evangelical lecture, and aimed to stir audiences to religious devotion. In 1901, Limelight Studios was also commissioned by the government to film the Federation of Australia. The most significant Victorian film made during the early 20th century was the story of the Kelly Gang. Directed by Charles Tate, it traces the life of an infamous outlaw and bushranger Ned Kelly. The film was shot in and around Melbourne, when the Kelly legend was still fresh, and was first screened at the Athenaeum in 1906. The film ran for more than an hour and is recognised by film historians as the world's first full-length feature film. It is also the first example of a bushranger movie, 
a subgenre that dominated the early years of Australian theatre and film production. The story of the Kelly Gang was considered lost for many years, but since the 1970s, various reels have been discovered in storage rooms and rubbish dumps all around the world. As of 2022, 17 minutes of the film have been restored and are available to watch at the National Film and Sound Archive. Here is a clip from the film. While the story of the Kelly Gang is a silent film, it is important to note that screenings were accompanied by live music, narration, and sound effects. And so in 1906, the film was anything but silent. Most of the film is black and white, except for the scene in which the Glen Rowan Hotel is set on fire, which is tinted red. The climactic scene of Ned's capture is very effective, with the characters staggering towards the camera, guns blazing. Melbourne audiences had never seen anything like it and flocked to the Athenaeum. The story of the Kelly Gang enjoyed a long national tour and was also screened in New Zealand and England where it was billed as the longest film ever made and brought the image of the Australian bushranger to international audiences. However, the film was also controversial, being accused of romanticising bushranging and police killings and was banned in Benalla and Wangaratta, two Victorian towns with strong Kelly connections. Critic Ina Bertrand interprets the film's tone as, quote, sorrowful, depicting Ned Kelly and his gang as the last of the bushrangers, end quote. Stephen Varg writes that, along with dramatising the bushranging legend, the film features many tropes that are unique to Australian literary tradition, such as, quote, miscarriages of justice, Protestant Catholic sectarianism, and class warfare, end quote. Since its release, many other films have been made about the Kelly legend, including a 1970 version starring Mick Jagger and a 2003 version starring Heath Ledger. Despite a strong start, Victorian and wider Australian film industries declined in the 1920s. Film historians theorise several reasons for this decline. Firstly, Australia's participation in World War I brought a temporary pause on film production. Secondly, Several states imposed a ban on the popular genre of bushranger films, citing fears over its influence on criminal activity. Thirdly, American distributors established a monopoly by signing exclusive deals with Australian cinemas. They were able to undercut the asking fees of Australian distributors since they had already recouped their production costs in the large US market. By 1923, 94% of all films exhibited in Australia came from America. During the 1930s, F.W. Thring established the FD Studios in Melbourne and began producing some of the first sound films in Australia, including Diggers, A Correspondence Course, The Haunted Barn, and The Sentimental Bloke. The studios were commercially successful, but stopped making films in 1936 in protest of the government's failure to address the American domination of the Australian film market. During the 1950s, British and American production companies made several notable Victorian set films 
based on stories from Australian literature. For example, Robbery Under Arms is set in the late 19th century and depicts two cattle thieves attempting to strike rich in the gold fields so that they can start a new life. Meanwhile, Summer of the 17th Doll is a contemporary drama that follows the lives of several people in their 30s living in Carlton. In 1959, American director Stanley Kramer and American actors Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner and Fred Astaire arrived in Melbourne to film an adaptation of the post-apocalyptic Australian novel On the Beach. The film is set in the near future, after nuclear war has devastated the Northern Hemisphere. It opens with one of the few remaining American submarines arriving in the harbour of Melbourne, one of the few cities still standing. Here is a clip from the film. The filming of On the Beach attracted a lot of interest from locals, and Peck and Gardner were frequently trailed by a gaggle of fans and journalists. Gardner purportedly did not enjoy her visit, and when asked what she thought of Melbourne, replied that it was, quote, the perfect place to make a film about the end of the world. However, film historians suspect that this quote was invented by a Sydney journalist. The film was shot in the suburb of Berwick. And if you've ever traveled there, you'll notice that many of the streets are named after people involved in the film. The submarine used in the film was provided by the Royal Australian Navy and is called the HMAS Melbourne. On the Beach premiered in all seven continents, including the Little America base in Antarctica. While the film recorded a loss of $700,000, it was praised in its day and in later years and acquired a cult following for its unique depiction of nuclear Armageddon. The Australian Film Institute was formed during the 1950s in order to recognise and celebrate high-quality productions. Sadly, during the 1960s, film production once again reached a low ebb. One important event that did occur during this decade was Prime Minister John Gorton's introduction of several forms of government support for the arts. The Whitlam government continued to support the Australian film industry by establishing assistance programs, which resulted in a resurgence of Australian filmmaking. This resurgence lasted from the 1970s to the mid to late 1980s and was dubbed by domestic and foreign critics as the Australian New Wave. It paralleled similar cinematic resurgences in France, Japan and the US. At the forefront of the New Wave was the 1975 mystery drama Picnic at Hanging Rock. This film is directed by Peter Weir and based on the novel by Joan Lindsay. The plot involves the disappearance of several schoolgirls and their teacher 
during a picnic at Hanging Rock near Mount Macedon on Valentine's Day in 1900 and the subsequent effect on the local community. Here is a clip from the film. Yeah. You wouldn't have the time, I suppose, miss. Weir and his cinematographer sought to achieve the look of an impressionist painting for the film, and so they draped several types of veils over the camera lens to produce diffused and soft-focused images. The film's music is derived from two traditional Romanian panpipe pieces, as well as several original compositions. The soundtrack, cinematography, and mysterious narrative combined to give Picnic at Hanging Rock a surreal, dreamlike quality. The film was popular with audiences and critics, but many were disturbed by the lack of plot resolution. Roger Ebert called it, quote, a film of haunting mystery and buried sexual hysteria, and remarked that it, quote, employs two of the hallmarks of modern Australian films, beautiful cinematography and stories about the chasm between settlers from Europe and the mysteries of their ancient new home, end quote. Indeed, the film forms part of a major theme in New Wave cinema, which casts the Australian bush as a harsh, frightening, and unresolvable place, and visitors as unwelcome or unstable. This theme reappears in the 1979 film Mad Max, which combines the outback gothic genre with the post-apocalyptic action genre. The film was directed by George Miller and stars a young Mel Gibson as Max Rokotansky, a police officer turned vigilante in a near-future Victoria that is plagued by psychotic motorcycle gangs. The film was shot in and around Melbourne. Many of the car chase scenes were filmed near Little River, northeast of Geelong. The early town scenes with the Toe gang were filmed in the main street of Clunes, north of Ballarat. Here is a clip from the film. Get you. A few hours ago down in Sun City, he goes berserk. Breaks the custody, I 
I've seen the star before. Terminal psychotic. <laughs> Miller shot the entire film on a tiny budget of $400,000. In order to keep it under budget, he did not secure filming permits and closed roads without permission. Most of the biker gang extras were members of actual Australian outlaw motorcycle clubs and rode their own motorcycles in the film. The production eventually attracted the interests of the Victorian police, but rather than shutting it down, they helped manage traffic and escort vehicles until the shoot was completed. According to Miller, Mad Max is inspired by the car and racing cultures of the 1970s, and in particular, the high road fatalities that this culture produced. Miller witnessed many car accidents growing up and working in a hospital emergency room as an adult, where he saw injuries and deaths similar to those depicted in the film. Miller also took inspiration from the effects of the 1973 oil crisis. Co-writer James McCausland recalls that, quote, long queues formed at petrol stations and anyone who tried to sneak ahead in the queue met raw violence, end quote. He further claims that he and Miller wrote the Mad Max script based on the thesis that Australians would do almost anything to keep their vehicles moving. This thesis reflects the aforementioned fear of the Australian landscape and positions cars as the only thing capable of taming the country's vast, hostile spaces. Mad Max polarized critics upon its release, with many regarding it as ugly and sadistic. However, the film was awarded three AFI awards and had a significant impact on modern popular culture. It spawned three sequels with a fourth in development and made a star of Mel Gibson, who went on to have a successful career in Hollywood. Despite its modest budget, the film grossed over $5 million at the Australian box office and over $100 million worldwide. Accordingly, it held the Guinness World Record for the highest box office to budget ratio of any motion picture. Prior to its US release, distributors feared that American audiences would not be able to understand the dialogue. Therefore, much of the Australian slang was rewritten and all the dialogue was redubbed by American voice actors. It wasn't until the year 2000 that the film was re-released in North America with its original dialogue track restored. Directors such as James Cameron, Guillermo del Toro, David Fincher and Quentin Tarantino, as well as video game director Hideo Kojimi, have all cited the Mad Max series as a major influence on their work. In addition to art films like Picnic at Hanging Rock and action films like Mad Max, the Australian New Wave was also notable for its comedies. For example, Melbourne-based films such as Stork, Elven Purple and Malcolm were all popular at the box office and all celebrate and satirise Australian colloquial culture. 
Comedies of this period were often bawdy in tone and celebrated the Australian larrikin. The main characters in these films are mischievous, crude and rowdy, but ultimately good-hearted, and much of the humour comes from their interactions with members of the upper class. The Australian playwright David Williamson also rose to prominence during this period and had several of his plays adapted into films. Don's Party is set during the 1969 Australian federal election and portrays a group of friends gathering in a Melbourne home to celebrate the Labor Party's predicted win. Meanwhile, the club was inspired by the backroom dealings and antics of the Collingwood Football Club and dramatises the fortunes of an AFL team over several seasons. The novel Monkey Grip by Geelong author Helen Garner was also adapted into a film. It follows a Melbourneian single mother played by Noni Hazelhurst and her on-again, off-again relationship with a heroin addict. Classic stories from Australian literature and history continued to provide popular cinematic adaptations, and in 1982, The Man from Snowy River was released. The film is based on the Banjo-Patterson poem of the same name and is set in the snowy mountain ranges of northeast Victoria. It follows a man named Jim, played by Tom Burlingson, who has spent his entire life in the mountains with his father. After his father dies while trying to capture a herd of Brumby, Jim is forced to travel into the lowlands where he falls in love with a drover named Jessica, played by Secret Thornton. Here is a scene from the film. I can bid them off good day. The Man from Snowy River gained a large audience, reigniting interest in Patterson's poetry. Critics praised the spectacular horse riding and droving scenes. It was the highest grossing Australian film up until that point, although this record was eventually eclipsed by Crocodile Dundee. It also won the AFI for Best Score and was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. The film's composer, Bruce Rowland, produced a special version of the main theme, which was featured in the opening ceremony of the 2000 Olympic Games held in Sydney. The 1990s proved a successful decade for Australian film and launched the careers of several new stars to a global audience. For example, Ben Mendelsohn began his career with a series of Victorian productions, such as the comedy The Big Steel and the dramas Nirvana Street Murder, Spotswood and Metal Skin. Rachel Griffiths had an early starring role in the highly acclaimed drama Amy, Eric Banner played a supporting role in the comedy The Castle, starred in the autobiographical crime drama Chopper, and featured prominently in the Melbourne-based sketch series Full Frontal. Finally, Guy Pearce, who grew up in Geelong, starred in the romantic comedy Dating the Enemy and the crime film The Hard Word before breaking into Hollywood. 
A key difference between this era of cinema and the previous era is that where new wave films were often set in the outback and different historical periods, Australian films of the 90s and 2000s inhabited contemporary suburbia. One of the most famous and infamous films of this period is Romper Stomper, starring Russell Crowe in one of his earliest roles. Directed by Jeffrey Wright, the film follows the exploits and downfall of a neo-Nazi gang in Footscray. Here is a clip from the film. Wright's script was inspired by the highly publicised crimes of leading Melbourne neo-Nazi skinhead, Dane Sweetman. He entered into a correspondence with Sweetman, who was serving a life sentence at Pentridge Prison, and drew many of the film's details and characters from Sweetman's recollections of gang life. At the time of its release, Romper Stomper was both praised and condemned, with some commentators seeing it as a vivid and realistic portrayal of, skin, of a skinhead gang, while others saw it as a, as a glorification of skinhead culture. This difference of opinion was exemplified on the SBS television series The Movie Show, in which David Stratton declared that he was appalled by the racial violence and refused to give the film a rating. Meanwhile, his co-host Margaret Pomerantz awarded it four and a half stars out of five. Despite Wright's stated intention to depict the destructive and self-destructive nature of neo-Nazi culture, the film is beloved by many real-life neo-Nazis, who regard the main character Hando as a tragic hero and use the film as a recruitment tool. The bloody climax of the film was shot at Point Addis in Anglesey. The shifting demographics of Australia following post-war multicultural immigration are reflected in Victorian cinema throughout this period. For example, The Heartbreak Kid, The Wog Boy, The Home Song Stories, and Romulus My Father all deal with aspects of the migrant experience in urban and rural Victoria. The production company Working Dog produced several popular comedies during this period, including Cracker Jack, Bad Eggs, Any Questions for Ben, and the TV series Kath and Kim, all of which are set in Melbourne. Their most beloved film, however, is the cult classic and endlessly quotable film The Castle. The film refers to the English saying, A man's home is his castle, and the film concerns the Kerrigans, a suburban Melbourne family whose home is being threatened with demolition by airport developers. The film's humour plays on the national self-image, most notably the concept of working-class Australians and their place in modern Australia. Here is a clip from the film. As you can see, I put a fair bit of work into it. Would you like me to point out the features as we go along, if you wouldn't mind? You see that lace up there? Yeah. Fake. Plastic. 
gives the place a Victoriana feel. The chimney? Great too. Who is it there? Char. How's a bit of char? Look at the size of that area. That's a big aerial. What do you think? Add a bit of value? Hard to say. You can overcapitalise, can't you? That's a huge aerial. And this is my backyard. Brisbane Mars, Sydney. How close it gets to the end of the runway? I just over the fence. Is that the runway there? Yeah. There? Yeah. Beautiful. Sometimes you think they're going to land right on top of you. Freaks the dog. Greyhound. Large kettle. Well, originally it was a cubby house when the kids were growing up. I was thinking of turning it into a granny flat. The council said no. Ah. Now here back, all landfill. Not allowed to build there. Is the soil being tested? Oh, yeah. Nothing too serious in there. What do you know about lead? Thematically, the film's central character, Daryl Kerrigan, embodies the stereotype of the Aussie battler, an underdog who will protect and serve his family in the face of challenges and adversity. Daryl is also doggedly committed to the Australian dream of home ownership and refuses to have that dream shattered by powerful governments or corporations. While the film portrays its characters as uncultured and ignorant, it also shows them to be deeply principled, loyal and compassionate people. While the film is beloved in Australia, the specificity of its humour and issues made it difficult for foreign audiences to connect with. The castle is full of memorable and hilarious lines, and many of the phrases have entered common usage in Australian speech. For example, tell him he's dreaming, how's the serenity, suffering your jocks, you could serve that in a restaurant, and this is going straight to the pool room. My favourite line is when the judge asks the Kerrigan's lawyer what section of the Australian Constitution has been breached, to which he replies, there is no one section, it's just the vibe of the thing. 2010 marked the release of the neo-noir crime drama Animal Kingdom. The film follows a Melbourne-based crime family as it wages war against the Victorian police. It boasts an all-star cast of Australian actors, including Ben Mendelsohn, Guy Pearce, Jackie Weaver, and Joel Edgerton. Here is a clip from the film. Hey, buddy! Hey! Lights are even with you. You've got a staring problem, baby. You're looking at it. Oh, 
Director and writer David Michaud was fascinated by Melbourne's criminal underworld and drew direct inspiration from the Petting Hill crime family, whose members were convicted of drug trafficking, arms dealing and armed robberies, and like the film, were headed by a matriarch. The Petting Hill family was also involved in the Melbourne gangland killings, dramatised in the TV series Underbelly. Animal Kingdom received overwhelming critical acclaim, with David Stratton praising the performances of Weaver and Mendelssohn. In recent years, Victorian cinema has moved away from Melbourne and returned to regional areas. For example, The Dressmaker, based on the novel by Rosalie Hamm, follows an accomplished Fabrician, played by Kate Winslet, who returns to her small hometown to take care of her ailing, mentally unstable mother. The film explores themes of revenge and creativity, and was described by director Jocelyn Morehouse as, quote, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven with a sewing machine, end quote. Likewise, The Dry, based on the debut novel by Jane Harper, follows a federal police officer, played by Eric Banner, as he returns to his hometown to attend the funeral of his childhood best friend. The film explores themes of memory, generational trauma, and the effect of drought on rural communities. Finally, in 2019, the Chinese action film The Whistleblower was shot along the Great Ocean Road, with several scenes taking place in Geelong. Victoria continues to produce a moderate number of films each year, but in common with other states and other English-speaking countries, it often has difficulty competing with the American film industry, which has more studios, more money, and a much larger home audience. The most successful Australian actors and filmmakers are easily lured by Hollywood and rarely return to the domestic film industry. There are exceptions to this rule. For example, Guy Pearce continues to make Australian features, including the Jack Irish films and TV series, which are adapted from the novels of Ballarat author Peter Temple. The Victorian film industry has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic in Australia, with at least 60 shoots being halted and about 20,000 people put out of work. In March of 2020, all productions funded by Screen Australia were postponed. Thankfully, recent improvements in COVID-19 statistics have allowed Screen Australia to continue to find work and process applications for actors and screen artists in anticipation of returning to production. One potential silver lining of the global pandemic is that it could remove a lot of American competition and open up the production and distribution landscape for more domestically made films. That concludes this presentation on the history of Victorian cinema. I hope you've enjoyed it and thank you for listening.